And so, you know, and, and, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, which shows us that walking the light doesn't mean walking sinlessly, but it does mean a pattern and manner of life that's consistent with God being light. On the other hand, we can't just deny that we have sin. If so, we're deceiving ourselves, probably no one else, and the truth isn't in us. If we confess our sins, though, he'll forgive us. So here are some conditions for having continued fellowship with God. We have to walk in the light, and the sins we commit we have to confess, and he'll cleanse us from those sins. We're still thinking about some of the things that it takes to be in fellowship with God, and that's pretty much the theme of First John overall. It's really hard for me, at least, to figure out how to outline the book. But but much of it really deals with this idea of how we can really have a relationship with God. So he continues along that line here in chapter 2. So would somebody read chapter 2, verses 1 to 6? My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Okay. So... He has just said, you know, we can't say we have no sin, and we can't say that we have not sinned, and he said that the blood of Jesus will cleanse us from sin, and if we confess our sins, he'll forgive us our sins. You know, it might almost seem like he was saying that it's okay to sin. You know, well, he wants to make sure we don't think that. My little children, which is what he calls his fellow brethren, he's an older Christian, uh, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John's whole purpose is to prevent sin, not to condone it. He doesn't want to leave the impression that, okay, go ahead and sin, it's fine. He's not giving us a license to sin, he's not gone soft on sin. You know, but, if anyone sins, it doesn't mean like leading a life of sin, but if somebody stumbles and falls into sin... We have an advocate with the Father. to be like a lawyer, like someone to plead our case, like an intercessor, who, who will you know, go to bat for us before God. And who is the advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous. The righteous. Now, uh, I don't know if, uh, well, you're kind of, you're, you're, a, you're a judge. If you're, you've not really not been a lawyer, have you? Not have? as a not representing someone. Okay, so I can talk about lawyers. I mean, you know, what's the reputation lawyers have? Ambulance chasers. Yeah, that's right, for sure. And uh, sometimes we, the word crooked gets associated often with lawyer. Blood-sucking parasite. <laughs> because sometimes there are lawyers who do things that are unethical and who try to kind of bend the rules to... For their clients and so forth. Well, now Jesus is a more or less like a lawyer. He represents us before God, but he's not a crooked lawyer. You know, he acts righteously, and and so you know he doesn't ever resort to some kind of you know 
unscrupulous tactic to get us off the hook. You know, he's not a, like a lawyer that, you know, is going to lie for his client and is going to work some kind of a trick. Um, but, but he is able to intercede for us. And he is able to deal with us before God if we sin. And the reason that he can do that is that he himself is the propitiation for our sins, which I don't know if we ever use propitiation in normal life. What is a propitiation? Yeah, that's what I thought. Atonement sacrifices. Yeah. A sacrifice that appeases God's wrath. The idea, in my understanding of sacrifice, is that when, say, a man sins, the penalty of sin was death, a man would die, but the propitiation was the sacrifice that would die in place of the man and thus atone for God's wrath. Turn away God's wrath by taking the punishment upon itself. Now, in the Old Testament, the sacrifices were usually what? Lamb. Lamb, or another animal. There's a problem with that. What's the problem with the animal being the atoning sacrifice? The blood of bulls and goats can never take away them. Why couldn't it? It's not good enough. Why isn't it? It's not valuable. It's just a dumb animal. Yeah, like there's no real equivalence. You know, an animal to die in a man's place is not really an equal sort of a thing. So those sacrifices taught the principle and the pattern, but they really in and of themselves were not adequate to pay the price for our sins. Jesus came and he died in our place. He was the atoning sacrifice. He was the propitiation. And so God, he can, he can be righteous and be our lawyer because he has paid the price. He's been punished in our place. He's the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice. Now, does that mean that he has to deal with a reluctant God who doesn't want to have to forgive us, but Jesus is the lawyer who goes before God and he argues our case so well that he makes it happen? Yeah, not at all. Who provided Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice? <coughs> So, this is what God wanted. There was no division between the Father and the Son in this. The Father provided Jesus to be the sacrifice in our place. Um, was there a verse about that? Like something about He intercedes according to the will of God? Or was that the Spirit, maybe? That sounds more like Romans eight twenty six and 27, talking about the Spirit. Okay, I think that may be what I was thinking of. Okay. Um, who did Jesus provide the propitiation for? Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Sins of the whole world. Um, you know, his sacrifice is adequate to deal with any man's sins, every man's sins. Therefore, we preach the gospel to all. Now, it's not going to be effective if a man doesn't turn to Christ, but it's available. You know, Jesus died so that anyone and everyone could be saved, could be forgiven. So there's not a problem with the availability of the forgiveness. The only problem 
uh, is is just the uh, um, you know willingness to accept that. Thoughts or comments on one and two? Okay. Um, in three, he says, here's how we know that we've come to know him. He does a lot with this we know. I think John is dealing with false teachers who use that phrase a lot. The Gnostics were the knowing ones, and they always stressed how much they knew. And so John keeps coming back with, we know, we know, we know. You know, John will often do things that kind of... Uh, twist what the false teachers said back against them. Turn, you know, and so he says, we know. Well, what do we know? We know that we've come to know him. How do we know that? If we keep his commandments. Now, in chapter 1, we know it by not walking in darkness. But here it's more positive. We need to keep his commandments. And, and, and so that's saying that our relationship with God depends on our lifestyle, depends on what we do. It doesn't just depend on some kind of philosophy or some kind of intellectual knowledge or connection with God. It depends on our life. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Um, so uh, John talks a lot about people who say one thing and do another. Like they, they claim something that's not true. He had said that back in six, one six. if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness. In one eight, if we say that we have no sin. In one ten, if we say that we've not sinned. Here, the one who says I've come to know him. And he'll do that a number of other times. You know, contrasting what somebody says with the reality. It's not what we say, it's what we do. And so if, if, we, if we say we know him and we don't keep his commandments, that's absolutely false. You know, there's no real uh, value. Uh, because knowledge is never merely mental. You know, it's always practical. Um, so, we got to obey him. we got to do what he says to have a relationship with him. Um, whoever keeps his word, he always goes back and forth from the negative, positive, positive, negative. So, if he, does, if he doesn't keep his commandments, he's a liar. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. You know, this is so typical John. He'll say one thing, then when he comes back with the contrast, he goes a step beyond. You know, it's, it's hardly ever just parallel. You know, he'll take a step and he'll say, you know, if, if uh, as he says here, you know, he doesn't keep his commandments, he's a liar. If he keeps his word... He tells the truth. No. He keeps his word. He goes one step further. The love of God has truly been perfected in him. Now John uses love more than any other... First John uses love more than any other New Testament book. Even though First John's a lot shorter than a lot of the other books. So this is a book about love, for sure. And, and, and God's love is perfected in us if we keep his word. You know, the proof of having God's love in us is not some exciting feeling or worship experience or whatever. It's obedience. And in our obedience, God's love reaches its goal. You know, his love is perfected. It actually comes to fruition. It, it, it comes to the conclusion that, 
that is intended when uh, when we keep his his word. Um, thoughts and comments through the first part of verse five. What what would they have thought of? I mean, looked at it as the commandments. Keep his commandments. I think just what he what he tells us to do. You know, he uses that a lot in the next verses. Even you know, I have it's not a new new commandment, but an old one that you have. So what was that? And then he says, "But I do give you a new commandment." But then he doesn't really say what it is. <laughs> well, sometimes in this book, the command is to love God, but I think it's not just that. I think that's one of the commands. I really think he means everything God says. God and not just. Jesus, not just saying what Jesus has said when he was here. I agree. I think it's everything God has communicated through Jesus, through the apostles, through whatever. Yeah, I, I, I think you have some specific illustrations. But, but I would say, if you keep going, by this we know that we are in him, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. You know, there's another way of saying that. You can say, keep his commands, or you can say, walk as he walked. Do what he did. Now, we could say, well, in what? Well, I don't know that he's really trying to specify just in one thing, but walk as he walked in all areas. When Jesus was questioned about the commandment, you know, the greatest commandment, or the commandments, you know, would that be kind of the way to sum that up? Uh, you know, the greatest one is, is love God. I, I guess what I'm... Is he referring to the old law? Is that well? You know, I think I think that kind of encompasses all of them when Jesus was answering that. But I, I the think. idea here, you 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 can look at this and say, well, keep the commandments, and that sounds like a checklist. That sounds like, okay, I need to know what to do in this situation and what to do here and how much to give here and, and check all those things off. Is that keeping the commandments? Or is it more the idea of the greatest commandment is love God and and do... <laughs> Can I go with neither one? Think about this. Maybe this would be something good to say at this point. We're certainly going to need to say it somewhere. <laughs> it looks to me like John is really dealing with at least pre-Gnostic ideas. That's a little complicated, but it's even more complicated to understand First John if we don't think about it. Because he's clearly opposing some people, some teaching, some thinking. And I think if we understand a little bit more about the Gnostic ideas, some of these things make a little more sense. Now, I don't know a lot about Gnosticism, but what I understand, among other things, is that they essentially taught that matter was evil, that the material things were, were bad or were inferior or whatever. And that meant, for example, here's one application of that, Jesus Christ did what the Christ was not really a man because the, the humanness, the, the matter, the, the body, you know, would not be worthy of the Christ. You know, and so Jesus Christ did not come in the flesh. You know, Jesus was just a man that the Christ came into at his baptism and the Christ left before he died. But the Christ really never really exactly had contact with this lower human flesh kind of idea. But here's another application they made. Since matter is bad, evil, tainted, the spirit is what's true and pure and all that, 
Basically, if I understand it, they taught that what you did doesn't matter. You know, what matters is your spirit, not what you, how you live. So you could do bad in your flesh, but your spirit's still right with God. That's what mattered. So they would kind of divide man into two parts. And you could still have a relationship with God spiritually, even though what your body did was wrong. There are people who do that today. There are some teachings that are more or less like that. That, you know, once you're saved, you're always saved. Even if your body is evil, still your spirit is connected with God. And uh, and so I think in contrast with that, he's saying, no, you have to do what God says. You know, it's not just a matter of some spirit connection. Whether you're, you, you don't know God if you don't keep his commandments. You don't obey him. You don't let, walk how he walked. And so I think he's just saying the test is obedience. That's one of the things we've got to do. We've got to obey. I don't think he was thinking so much just some kind of a, a formal legalistic checklist. But I do think he's saying you've got to do what he says. I mean, I think, you know, from the perspective of what he was fighting against, he was saying obedience matters. It matters doing what he says. You know, if it's just a mechanical ritual thing, no. But I don't think that's what he's dealing with here. I think here he's dealing with the idea it doesn't matter what you do. You know, and it does matter what you do. You, we're always, uh, you know, we're always vulnerable on various sides of things. And, uh, you know, Satan will exploit us on one end or the other. And so often, you know, we may think more about combating whatever it is we're most focused on. But if we're not careful we'll leave ourselves vulnerable on the other side. So, you know, we could, in combating legalistic ideas, really come to the conclusion that, well, you know, I, I don't worry too much about obeying a lot of that stuff. I mean, I don't want to be legalistic about it. I just try to have a good attitude toward God and a good heart. You know, I love Him and all that. And, you know, people go to that. Well, that's not right. It's, you know, we do have to do what he says. And, uh, you know, it, not in some kind of a slavish, you know, uh, I'm just trying to do the externals kind of a spirit. But God wants to be respected. And if Jesus told us something to do, we need to do it. And, you know, to say, oh, yes, but I love him. And I'm so close to him. You know, and but I don't, I don't do what he tells me. I mean, what would you think about a child who said to his parents, "Oh, I just care so much about you, and I just love you so much. And you're such wonderful parents." All the while, he disobeys everything they ever tell him. He's just uh, flattering them, trying to get by with uh, murder. <laughs> so, good, good question. All the thoughts along that line. Which is maybe why he says it both ways. So, like, whichever way you need it. Right. You and, and, you know, he covers all the bases. You know, you're not going to get out of this one. Um, I do like what he says, the one who says he abides in him. And, by the way, the word abide is used more than half of the time it's used in the New Testament. It's used by John. And John has certain words he just works over a lot. But the one who, who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And that is so much John's test. You know, we've got to walk as he walked. We've got to purify ourselves as he was pure. We have to walk in the light as he is in the light. We have to keep the commandments as he kept the commandments and so forth. Our pattern is the Lord. Again, it's not feeling and emotion. It's obedience. It's living and being like he was. 
You know, sometimes people have this mystical idea, well, I'm just so close to God. I just have this strong connection with God. I just really have this feeling of oneness with God. Well, do you live like he lived when he was a man? No, no, I don't worry about that. But I really... Well, what does it mean then, this connection, this feeling? You know, you prove that in, in walking like he walked. We don't abide in him unless we behave like him. It, we're just kidding ourselves if we say, well, I'm in him, and I'm close to him and all that, but I don't, I don't live like he lived. So that's the kind of thing he's dealing with. Now, he talks about walking. You know, walking is a good uh, metaphor for how we're supposed to be. You know, you think about walking as something that's a constant thing. It doesn't just come in spasms and lurches. You know, he doesn't use <laughs> saunter or lounge. You have to walk. He doesn't, uh, you know, talk about uh, crawling or groping. You have to walk. You know, it's not some gay and giddy dance. You know, it's purposed, serious, consistent walking just like he walked. So, if we were to walk like Jesus walked, what would that mean in our life? Obey God, the Father. Yes, it would, because boy, didn't Jesus do that. I mean, he's constantly saying, I don't say anything but what he told me to say. I don't do anything but what he, what he tells me to do. I didn't come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and all that sort of thing. Uh, Jesus didn't seek his own glory, he didn't do his own will, he didn't eat his own meat, he didn't save his own life, he didn't avenge his own wrong. Jesus was ultimately unselfish. He lived for God. That is challenging. To walk like Jesus walked, wow, that's really saying a mouthful. So thoughts or comments? It sounds, uh, the description sounds exactly like faith. Would you call this being in the Lord faith? You know, your faith is nothing if you don't see how it works. Is this just another way of saying maybe the same thing? Yeah, I mean, I think you could express something that, that does the same thing in different ways. You know, so if you're trying to talk about like, you know, what's the condition for being in fellowship with God? Well, I think the Bible says that a lot of different ways. You know, it does say to live by faith or to, to, uh, to you know, trust or to believe or whatever. He'll say that here too. You know, but it also says to walk in the light or to walk as he walked or to live by the Spirit, you know, and so forth. There's a lot of different ways that he will express the idea of faithfulness in our life to God. So I would agree. Other thoughts or comments? It's also like a two-way, I don't know if I see it here as much, but a lot of times, you know, if you're in God and God's in you, yes, uh, kind of goes hand in hand. Yeah, draw absolutely. close to God and God will draw close to you. Yes. Yeah, it becomes like... Uh, you know, two snakes eating each other by the tail. <laughs> Eventually meet face to face and they vanish. <laughs> That's just the closeness of the relationship. Obviously those are metaphorical things that, that refer to how close we are to each other. Alright, anything else through 2.6? 
Well, he's going to kind of take a different uh, emphasis here in the next section. So 7 through 11. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is, the tr- which is, a true, which is true in him and, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Okay, he says a lot here. He said in six to walk like he walked and the next thing he thinks about is what? Walking in the light? Yeah, but here in seven. Well, yeah, and what is that commandment? Can, can you tell? Uh, it says the word which you heard. Yeah, but what is the commandment of the word? It's to love your brother. That's really what he's saying. He uh, doesn't really get around to saying that until you come to verse uh, 10. But that's what he's talking about. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you've heard had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you've heard. We still don't know what that word is, but that's what it's going to be. Um, and it's interesting, he starts out that with beloved. So before he exhorts to love, he practices it. Now, it's, it's, it's an old commandment. In what sense is the command to love an old commandment? It's always been at the root of who and what God is and what he wants Absolutely. for and run his people. Absolutely. It's a no innovation. You know, it's part of the original message. Oldness can be an asset. You know, we often think oldness to be a liability. But here it's old in the sense it's authentic. It's time-tested. You know, it's consistent with what God's been saying all along. But then he turns around and says, on the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you. Well, I think he's talking about the same commandment. But so why would he call it a new commandment when he just said it was an old commandment? New expression of the old thing. Yes. And something that new is new has what? It's fresh. Freshness and vigor and life and vitality. It's not obsolete. So there's a sense in which love is, is always a new thing. So this is both new and old. It's ancient, but it's not antiquated. You know, it, uh, you know the, the command to love will uh, resonate with people who fear innovation and also resonates with people who dislike things that are stale. (laughs) You know, it's always new, but it's been around forever. (laughs) It's true in him and in you uh, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is shining. We have no excuse to stay in the darkness. We've got the real light that's shining. And so he finally says, the one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Now, there's this constant thing with the inconsistency between what I say and the fact. This is a fifth time he's done this deal with who he who says but contradicts it in his life. You know, being in the light and hating your fellow believers, that just doesn't work. That doesn't, that's, you know, that's a contradiction. You hate your brother, you're in the darkness. I don't care what you say about where you are. <laughs> you can say you're in the light, but if you hate your brother, you're not. 
now John uses pretty strong descriptions in what he says. You know, he doesn't say, you know, if you don't love him very much, he says you hate him. You know, because in John, there's no twilight. You're either in the darkness or you're in the light. You know, we may not like John being so black and white about things. But there's something to be said for that. You know, he puts the issues in, you know, bold, clear terms. There's only two options ever with John. (laughs) There's not any middle ground. And uh, you wonder, why was he emphasizing hatred and love? Well, here's what I think. I think the false teachers were separating from the true believers and were looking down on and hating the true the people who were true in the Lord. And so I think the test of loving your brother to be right with God was something that these uh, radicals who were leaving were clearly showing that they didn't do. I think that's why he keeps emphasizing it. He says he hates his brother, then he's in the darkness until now. Now the in t- until now is interesting, even after the true light is shining. You wouldn't expect him to still be in the darkness until now, you know, after the true light has been shining. Um, On the other hand, he says, the one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. You know, there's so much in the New Testament about loving your brother and about one another stuff. We tend to be very individualist in the West, but... Christ brought forth a religion that is very communal. Uh, Isolating ourselves from our brethren is no virtue. You know, we need to love our brother. Uh, You don't get a purer form of Christianity if you do it Lone Ranger style. You know, so he says, uh, the one who loves his brother abides in the light. Uh, You can can see your way, and there's no cause for stumbling. Uh, you, You won't stumble because you'll see the light when you love your brother. On the other hand, the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So a hatred make, blinds you eventually. You're in darkness so long you can't even see anymore. You know, so these false teachers who are leaving and who hate their brethren live, breathe, and have their very being in the darkness. You know, you don't want any part of them. We're in the light. So, not only do you have to walk, keep his commandments, But if you want to have fellowship with God, you've got to love your brother. If you want to be in the light, you've got to keep his commandments. And you've got to love your brother. (laughs) Those are are essential things, and you just can't do it any other way. You don't walk in the light, you have no fellowship with God. If you don't love your brother, you are in the darkness. Thoughts and comments on all that? That was a mouthful, don't you think? Well, so is the next one. 12 to 14. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven. You, for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Okay. Um, I believe that this little section is part of the emphasis in 1 John 
These Gnostics were the knowing ones. They were the spiritually elite. They knew things that ordinary Christians didn't know. They had advanced to a higher level. So one of the things that John tries to do is to reassure the brethren there isn't some special super-duper something you're missing out on that has kind of put you behind. And so he tells them about where they're at. He has confidence in the true relationship with God that they had. Now, he says a lot about writing them. I mean, this whole chapter, in verse 1, I'm writing these things. In verse uh, 7, I'm not writing a new commandment. In verse 8, I am writing a new commandment. You know, and so forth and so on through the chapter. Uh, Here, I'm not sure uh, about the translation you were using, but in the original, you've got three phrases, I am writing to you, I am writing to you, I am writing to you. And then three that say, I have written to you, I have written to you, I have written to you. And so, and, and then each of them, he goes, little children, fathers, young men. Little children, fathers, young men. So we're scratching our head over, okay, so what's the deal here? Why say, I am writing three, to each of the three classes, and then turn around and say, I have written to each of the three classes. And what's more, did you notice what he said in each case to the little children? Uh, no, it's what he said to the fathers, isn't it? Yeah, what does he say to the fathers? And each of them. You know him. Yeah, very same thing. So, you know, what's the deal with this? Well, I think he is trying to emphasize that he is using repetition for emphasis. That when he says, I am writing, in the first three, he's talking about, I am writing. And that's what I'm writing. From his standpoint as he writes. When he says, I have written, I think he's talking about their standpoint when they read it. By the time they read it, he will have written. (laughs) So I am writing now, but I have written, thinking about it from their standpoint. There's a lot of that in in the first century. There's some other cases in the Bible where uh, I wrote (coughs) in the original, really should be translated, I'm writing for us. Because it's looking at it from the perspective of when they receive the letter, he will have written. So I think he's saying the same thing. This, he is writing. But what's the deal then? Why divide them into little children, fathers, and young men? What's the difference between the little children, fathers, and young men? Are they from stages of life? Yes. Or spiritual growth? Yes. But there would be a debate then about what each of these refers to. You have to think about this a while. What's the little children? What's the fathers? What's the young men? What do these each mean? Young, middle, and old. That's what a lot of people think. (laughs) I don't think so. Not young, middle, and old. (laughs) Why would we not think this was young, middle, and old? Well, for one thing, he doesn't go in that order. Correct. It would be young, old, and middle, which is kind of odd. For another thing, it doesn't mention women. If you go down, well, yeah, but I mean, this is kind of like uh, he's not using men in the gender-specific uh, way. He started off spiritual maturity. Yeah, but that's not my point. He started 
this chapter or this section yes. with my little children. And when he said that, who did he mean? Everybody. Yes, and he will use that various other times. Look at, for example, 2.28, now little children. And he does that even in Second John and so forth. Little children seems to be what he uses to refer to all the brethren. Since he's older, they're all his little children. So I think little children is talking to all of them that he then dis- divides up into two groups, the older and the younger Christians. Maybe partially by age, maybe partially by maturity. I'm not sure exactly you know, which should take priority, but the point is what he's saying, not so much the age. I'll talk about that in a minute. Now, what he says to the little children, their sins have been forgiven. And what he says to the little children is they know the Father. You know, his point is, you're forgiven and you know the Father. You don't need the Gnostic teaching. You don't need some special elite, you know, uh, hidden instruction. You already have been forgiven and you know the Father. To the fathers, he keeps saying, you know him who's been from the beginning. Now think about the fact that he tell the older Christians, you know the one who's been from the beginning. What's the privilege of age in Christ? deeper, firmer knowledge and understanding. What does he say to the, the, the young man? Well, he says, um, you've overcome the evil one. You're strong. The word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, what do young Christians often have to do more, maybe even than older Christians? Fight temptation? Yeah. They fight the battle. But what do they have to help them in that battle? Strength. Strength. You know, you think of the vigor and strength of youth, and what else do they have? The Word of God. The Word of God abiding in them, which is the weapon we use to meet and conquer temptation. That's the key to our spiritual strength. So the young man, they've got the Word, and they've got strength that God gives them, and so they can overcome. That they are, they're the ones on the front line of the battle, but they've got what it takes to win. The older Christians, more the ones who have the deeper knowledge. Uh, so it's characteristic of the father is his knowledge, the fruit of experience. Of young men, it's victory, the prize of strength. Uh, so, But all of those, it's positive. He's writing to them not because you know, they're, they're ignorant and pathetic and they haven't really developed. He's writing them because they have. Because they've got everything they need. Don't let these elitists come along and sell you a bill of goods and make you think there's some special thing you haven't got that if you had it, you'd, you know, it'd transform your life spiritually. All right, thoughts and questions through 14. The, the kind of the, the original, when the gospel when Jesus was preaching the gospel, the appeal, not, not the appeal, but it was, it was put out for all people. It, it wasn't the, the Jews had become elitist with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, and Jesus did away with that. And so the, there was, when this is coming back, he, he's like, you should know that this isn't right. Jesus got rid of this. There's not supposed to be this elitist. It's supposed to be a, a family setting with the older, wiser ones helping the, the, the younger, more immature ones. 
but it, it, it's not a I am greater than thou or holier than thou. Amen. Setting. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good, good point. That's exactly what you see in Jesus. The common people heard him gladly. You know, there's just a certain attraction to things that are kind of hidden and kind of special and kind of nobody knows them. And we've got this really connection. And often you'll see even like teachings that you don't even learn until you get to be in the inner circle. You know, this is a special hidden super duper, you know, stuff and so forth. We, we're kind of attracted to that. <laughs> but there is no such thing in Christ. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't have these hidden, special, you know, elite things. Yes, exactly. Or levels of of understanding. Other thoughts to 14. We had the conversation last week about the idea of thinking you're going to fail and that leads you to failing in temptations and everything like that. Here now he's telling them that, especially the young ones, that are thinking they're insufficient as these other people are attacking them. He's telling you, you you have the ability. I've given you the ability. You're able to make it through. So they're, they're not in this situation of, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail, and so then they fail. And then they have to get beg for forgiveness again, and then they think, I'm just not worthy, and then they fail, and then they fail. But this idea of, you're forgiven, you have the strength in what you've been given, and you can make it through. It's just very encouraging for them in that situation. Amen. Good point. Yeah. Yeah, this is kind of... A little bit tangential, but um, but yes, like what Cameron was just saying. Um, sometimes even Paul seems to do that, like when he is writing to someone, um, like Philemon. Like maybe he wasn't entirely sure what he was going to do about Onesimus, but he was like, "I just know that you're going to do the right thing," and so on and so forth. And it just like kind of makes the person. It really encourages the person to do the right thing. Um, so I don't know, sometimes that is really useful to, I guess, focus on the positive. Like, yes, there may be some negatives, but sometimes it is really helpful to be like, well, you are doing good in lots of things, and you will overcome because of this, and so on. Love hopes all things, believes all things, and so forth. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. I think we, uh, we would prefer people live up to our expectations and, instead of down to our fears. And uh, you see that a lot of, with parents raising kids. If you raise your kids, telling them all the time you're just a miserable wreck, you're a failure, right? you're not going to do this right, you're going to do it wrong, you always mess everything up, what does a kid do? Well, he lives down to his parents' expectations. But in many cases, parents who believe in their children, who trust them, not unreasonably, not blindly, but who do believe they can do it, and they give them hope and confidence, their children do a lot better. And so you do see that in the Bible. I agree, I agree with them. And, and I think... You know, that confidence is part of what he's trying to give them here. So they're not shaken in their faith by the Gnostics. It does help them to realize what they have in Christ and that they're not behind and missing out on something they really need. Other thoughts? 15 to 17? Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Well, you know, he, he, he does this sort of thing sometimes. He's just been saying we should love the brethren, but then he turns around and says, but don't love the world. You know, so there are certain things to love and certain things not to love. 
Now, he says not to love the world nor the things in the world. You know, you want to make sure you cover all the bases there. <laughs> so don't love the world, don't love the things of the world, the ways of the world, the attitude of the world. You know, don't want the world's favor, don't adopt its custom, don't covet its prizes. You know, just stay away from the world. Uh, and, you know, you can't really compromise on this. Uh, because he says, neither the things that are in the world, and and then he says, uh, he tells you what it is. For all that's in the world, okay, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride, boastful pride of life. So he's talking about, um, perhaps, I, I would say, if you have to distinguish the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, you know, we're talking about... Uh, sexual uh, sin we're talking about uh, sins of greed and pride and power you know so sex money and power or whatever are the tempting things um and those are some of the things we got to really watch out for in the world um now why would we not want to love those things well if you love the world the love of the father's not in you you know they're incompatible you can't do both you know the, the you can't you, love for the Father and love for the world don't coexist. You know, it, it's kind of like, uh, you know, a, 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 a husband who's married to a wife, she can't love two, two men. You know, she got to make up her mind. You know, what man would say, okay, well, it's okay if you love me and you love, you know, John too. You know, no, you, you make up your mind. Uh, you know, you can't love God in the world. That's that's running around on God. That's, that's two-timing it. And he won't put up with it. You know, there's an absolute contrast between everything that's in the world and the will of God. So it doesn't fit together. And furthermore, don't love the world because the world is passing away and also its lusts. So in contrast to the one who does the will of God who abides forever. You know, you don't want to love the world because there's no future in it. You know, one out of one dies you know, there's a 100% fatality rate in this world. You know, I mean, people are always worried about Ebola and things like that back when that was a big deal. And because, I don't know, maybe in some of those African countries, a pretty high percentage died. You know, like 80 or 90% or whatever, which sounds to us like, whoa. Uh, and there's all sorts of things you could say about all that. But, you know, the fact is, we get all concerned about Ebola because you might have an 80 or 90% chance of dying if you contracted it. Well, the fact is, you have a 100% chance of dying. <laughs> Unless Jesus comes back, we're going to all die. You know, we get all hyped uh, up about, you know, this and that and the other could kill you. Oh, yeah, but something will, you know. Uh, like asking the guy, you know, what did, the, what did that fellow die of? He said, I can't remember it wasn't anything serious, you know. Uh, well, uh, you know, something's going to get us. And so, there's no, it doesn't last. The one who does the will of the Father, that's what's what lasts. I mean, think about, what if your stockbroker offered you investment, an investment that guarantees an awesome return for the first two or three years, but after that you lose your shirt and go bankrupt? Anybody want to sign up for that one? Yeah, for two or three years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but it's a five-year contract. No. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of people who do sign up for it, you know. It's just uh, listening to a story of some friends of mine who did exactly that. They borrowed money to invest in some of these companies that pay you, uh, you know, like unbelievable rates of return. And, uh, well, 
they did. They got the return, but it was going so well they decided to uh, spend the return instead of paying back the investment. And then when the companies went bankrupt, there they are. Uh, you know, I mean, that's true of the world as a whole. You know, and even the more solid investments, they're gone. The world's gone. You know, there's no lasting power in the world. So if we want something stable, the will of God is the only eternal reality. So, love your brethren, but don't love the world or the things in the world. Thoughts and comments on that through verse 17. Oh, I've heard people use um, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life as kind of like categories for sins. Do you think it's more talking about like specific sins? I think they're categories, but I think fleshly sins are more or less sexual, and lust of the eyes is more or less things you see that you want, and okay. pride is more or less pride. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think I think there, uh, you know, maybe we could go broader in some ways with some of those. Obviously, there's some sins that wouldn't be, you know, totally included in those. But I think he's just giving you examples. Here's three basic ways that you sin. And most. Sin will fall in one of those. You're right. <laughs> you are right. In, in one way or another, all of them will. It, right. You know whether whether you have to force them or not. Yeah, you might you might need to broaden. You know, the lust of the flesh. Maybe you ought to include other things like substance abuse and things like that. You know, you might. But still, yeah, you're right. Really, pretty much. You know, it's hard to think about a sin that doesn't ultimately come back to one of those three. It shows that he just fixed those areas uh, by contrasting them with like pride of life being humble um, the eyes thing keeping your eyes in check like David said he would then you cover a multitude of sins if you fix the root of the problem instead of all these yes. different issues yes good point it does help us to think about okay what's the root of our sins you know what do, what's the devil getting us with you know sometimes we're more concerned with just trimming off some fruit instead of digging out the root That was almost a run. <laughs> All right, other questions or comments? All right, so where we're going is he's going to start talking about the Antichrist. Now, you know what the word Christ means? Anointed one. Well, guess what the Gnostics had? according to them at least, they had the anointing. They were the anointed ones. Now one of the things John's going to say is, well actually all are anointed. (laughs) But another thing he's going to say is really they're the anti-anointed ones. He says they're the anti-Christ. They're not really, you guys are the anointed ones, they're not really. So that's where we're going, but we'll stop here for now. And uh, I think we agreed that we will skip the next two Thursdays since that's Christmas Day and New Year's Day. And we will start back on like the 8th.